This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, August 17th. I'm Samantha Rank. Monday, August 15th marked one year since the Taliban reclaimed Afghanistan after 20 years of war and bloodshed. Chad Robichaud and his Afghan interpreter Aziz join the podcast today to detail their escape from the Taliban after the U.S.'s botched withdrawal last August. But before we get to my conversation with Chad and Aziz, we have an important announcement to share with all of you. We are taking a break from reporting headlines on the show for the next couple of weeks. We always aim to be improving and making the show more beneficial for you, our listeners. So if you are a fan of the interview-only show, let us know. Or if you miss headlines at the top of every show and want them back, then we want to hear from you. Let us know your thoughts by sending an email to letters at dailysignal.com. Your feedback will help to determine whether or not we bring back headlines to the Daily Signal podcast. We'll get to my conversation with Chad and Aziz right after this. We've reached a critical point in American history. Capitol Hill has become ground zero for pushing back against the left, and we want to equip you for a career there. Our Ready, Set, Hill program prepares you to not only find a job on the Hill, but advance conservative principles and impact public policy. It's just a two-day commitment, and we're currently taking applications for August, September, and October. Get more info and sign up at heritage.org training. Just look for the Ready, Set, Hill program. Joining the show today is former Force Recon Marine Chad Robichaud and his interpreter Aziz. Monday marked the one-year anniversary since the Taliban captured Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, effectively taking over the country. Chad and Aziz, thank you so much both for joining the show today. Absolutely, Samantha. Thanks for having us on. Of course. Now, I want to flash back to August of 2021 when the Taliban was making its way to Kabul. Aziz, I want to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the days leading up to the Taliban takeover and how your family was handling the situation? Thank you very much for the time. Uh, To be honest with you, it was a really dark day and a very bad time. Uh, There was fear. There was uh, disappointments as uh, the provinces were collapsing and the Taliban were uh, reaching to the capital. I was totally uh, dying like a battery will lose its charge. I was seeing my body from inside, it was dying. And then on the other hand, I had my brothers, uh, Chad and some other guys, they were uh, texting me and they were uh, giving me the hope that they are finally coming to save me. I don't have to be worried. And they knew in what situation I was. And especially when I was watching the news that they were killing all those people, the Afghan National Army, the police, the Indians guys, interpreters, or anybody who was involved either with the ex-government of Afghanistan or worked under the United States contractors or directly for the military or government. So uh, we, we were actually, the, the family was uh, under fear. I myself was under fear and my daughters were crying as they were seeing it. Uh, uh, they were coming and uh, finally uh, there was totally disappointments. Now, did you anticipate that the fall would happen? And um, you know, what was mentally going through your minds, your family's minds in the weeks leading up to it? 
Uh, in the weeks leading up to it, we didn't anticipate that it will happen uh, just as happened. Uh, we were thinking maybe uh, because of that strong army we had over there, the strong zero units that were trained by CIA, the ammunitions and guns that they had, uh, we were thinking it will probably at least take them a few years before uh, uh, the regime collapse. We were not uh, expecting it that uh, the regime will collapse all of a sudden within the matters of hours like within 24 hours, the whole system collapsed. Uh, that was totally unpredictable. Uh, but uh, still, there was the fear of, uh, like when the government, the United States government uh, turned their back to all the interpreters uh, and all those people that they were, uh, they worked for them either directly or indirectly. Uh, there was uh, totally um, uh, fear of being killed in front of your family being tortured, uh, which was uh, really a risky situation for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I have a text message actually pulled up from chat on my phone right now. It was dated August 20th of 2021, telling me that he had successfully evacuated you and your family. Chad, I want to dive a little bit more into the evacuation itself in just a moment. But Aziz, can you tell us what life has been like for you and your family since leaving Afghanistan last year? Uh, to be honest with you, uh, we have been through many changes uh, since last year up to now. Uh, we spent like nine months in limbo in Abu Dhabi because of uh, the State Department uh, slow processing the immigrants in the humanitarian city in Abu Dhabi and then uh, uh, finally uh, moving to United States. There are some goods and bads. The bad part is uh, like those uh, few days uh, that we were first trying to leave, but we couldn't leave. We were trying to come to the airport as uh, Chad's friends that they were inside the Kabul airport. They were sending me uh, GPS locations that I should come to this gate with my family. But because of all that big crowd and people, we could not make it. Plus there were different security lines like the Taliban security line was in the outer circle. In the middle circle, there was the zero unit guys, the Afghan uh, military, and then the internal uh, circle was uh, controlled by the US Marines. I got, uh, they shot at me and my family several times. Every day when uh, I received a new direction to reach with my family to that uh, direction for the purpose of getting inside the airport, we couldn't make it. We were getting disappointed. We were getting hopeless every day and every day. But finally, after a few days, when the guys uh, physically had to come outside and find us in the crowd, then we were able to make it inside. We saw people that they got shot at. That we saw children that uh, people step on it and uh, family. Uh, Families were lost from each other, like daughter uh, lost mom and dad, like son lost their brothers. I mean, there was all kinds of uh, bad and heartbreaking situations that we've been through. On the other hand, we were seeing dead in front of us. I was looking at my children's faces, at my wife's face, that they were so scared and so, uh, I mean, crying inside. But then uh, once we ended up uh, uh, into Abu Dhabi, on the other hand, uh, since we were not vaccinated, 
we spent a lot of time inside the building. We were not allowed to move from one building to another building because first of all, all the immigrants were not vaccinated. Secondly, they didn't have visas. Uh, there was a fear of that they might jump over the wall and run away into the city. I mean, there was all kinds of uh, perceptions that they kept us inside the, the buildings as prisoners. We did the same thing. We uh, slept uh, all day and uh, night inside the same room. We didn't have the freedom to walk from one building to another building because they were just trying to control the crowds and the people because everybody was pushing themselves to either reach to the, the building where the American NGOs were or the United States consulate or the CBP building or the Afghan embassy. They were just trying the same thing as they were doing in Afghan airport because they, they, there were all kinds of rumors that uh, the United States will only take uh, such and such and people, but not such and such and people. Then they will send some of the people to Brazil or uh, to Uganda or some other countries. So everybody was still kind of in the mood or in the action of pushing each other, elbowing each other, try to make it first so they get the chance or the ticket uh, to fly to United States. I mean, every uh, rumors or news that was spread out, it was killing us. The children, every day they were getting disappointed, my wife and myself, as I was the lead for all the Afghan immigrants inside the humanitarian city, I was the main contact between the U.S. Embassy, the NGOs, the UEE uh, Red Cross, all the UEE uh, uh, CIDs, uh, trying to create communications. I worked really hard between all those buildings and the 17,000 Afghan immigrants on each floor, each building, uh, each... Uh, uh, actually cluster, I created communication channels through WhatsApp groups. So when all these people come, like the vaccine team, when they came uh, in the middle of the night, they wake me up, they're like, Mr. Aziz, we don't know where to start, how to start, because the people are not uh, respecting the line. They're just pushing each other. There have to be some type of leadership. There have to be some type of management from among the uh, the, the immigrants so that we should be able to do our job in a best manner. But uh, then uh, finally we made it to uh, United States like after nine months of spending in a walled compound where there was no trees, no grass, uh, no freedom of walking from one place to another place. It was just like uh, spend the time in a lockup. Wow. Wow. That is quite a story and quite a journey that you had to take to get here to the United States. Do you have family or I know your immediate family got out. Uh, do you have any family members or friends that are still in Afghanistan? And if so, have you been able to uh, get in contact with them to, to you know, see what's been going on there? Yes, uh, my parents and my siblings are uh, unfortunately still stuck in Afghanistan. Uh, they have to, they had to move uh, uh, from the capital uh, right before the Taliban take over the capital. They had to move to a different province, which I cannot name here for their security purpose. Um, they moved to different provinces and they're just still in hiding. 
because uh, a lot of people at the capital and the provinces that are near the capital, they know them, who they are and whose parents or siblings they are. Because of what I did uh, for the United States government and the military in Afghanistan, uh, that's also uh, either directly or indirectly affecting their lives uh, negatively. Chad, I want to ask you a little bit about the evacuation efforts that you helped with. As I mentioned earlier, I remember getting this text message from you telling me that you had successfully evacuated Aziz and his family, and you also helped more than 17,000 Afghans and allies that were stranded in the country. Walk us through, if you could, the logistics of the evacuations. Well, I mean, it was obviously very complicated and very fast and uh you know, Samantha, you know, I'm a person of faith and I, so I'll tell you that there's no way to explain actually what happened other than it was divine because the way things came together were just truly was just miraculous. I mean, uh, doors that were open for us, people that stepped in to help uh, financially, logistically, uh, the way it happened and the way it happened so quickly was just something that's very, you know, very difficult to even explain. But uh, initially we got together, uh, myself and, and Sarah Verardo, uh teamed up uh, from Mighty Oaks Foundation and the Independence Fund to start Save Our Allies. I started contacting former special operations veterans that I knew and trusted very well uh, who had the experience to pull off initially the, the rescue of Aziz and his family. And as we were putting this together, uh, one of the team members uh, noted that there was a group of about 3,500 orphans. And so we kind of paused for a second and said, if there's, instead of just getting Aziz and his family, and he's, uh, why don't we get other people? Because... We have the skills, we have the experience, we have uh, doors are opening to give us the ability to do this. Sarah was able to get us access to go in the HKI airport through the Joint Chiefs. Uh, we, and then, um, so we started looking at different ways to help other people and we knew that there'd be vulnerable groups like women and children, Christians that we persecuted, uh, not only the, you know, the interpreters uh, themselves and their families, but Americans. And so we made the decision to help as many people as we could and in that effort, we reached out. Uh, one of our team members, Joe Roberts, had a contact with the uh, the royal family of the of the uh, UAE, which is where the Abu Dhabi Humanitarian Center is. And we asked for assistance, and they they agreed, and they gave us access to the humanitarian center to move people to, which is very important because if you if you're moving people country to country without a visa, they can't just go into into open population. They have to go into a humanitarian center. Uh, so we had access to that, which is a key, a key element to the evacuations. And additionally, they gave us access to their C-17 planes uh, with pilots. Uh, Glenn Beck, who's a longtime friend of mine uh, and supporter of Mighty Oaks Foundation, started raising money for flights and uh, to be able to fly people out, but didn't really have a system to fly people out. So he contacted me and, and uh, you know, again, had another one of these divine kind of connections where he's like, we have the ability to get people out but we're struggling to get flights. He has flights, but don't have the ability to get people out. So we merged with Mercury One uh, and all these amazing people came together and it just came, it just happened so quickly. And I'll tell you that that first 10 days at the HKIA airport, as Kabul was falling, uh, the evacuation of people, uh, it was all such a blur. Uh, it was very hard to even wrap your head around what was happening because everyone, if you stopped and slept for, 10 minutes, you were like, trade, you felt like you were trading that for someone's life. And so no one stopped, no one slept. Everyone just pushed through for, for 10 days straight. We didn't know how much time we have. It just so happened to end up being 10 days. And when the dust settled, that's when we realized we had actually rescued about 
12,500 people at that time. Um, but as the U.S. military was withdrawing and shutting down the airport, we knew we couldn't leave. We knew there was thousands of Americans still there. The news was saying there was 100. Uh, the White House was saying there was 100. We knew that was not true. Uh, and by the way, it didn't matter if there was a thousand or a hundred, we don't leave one American behind. And, uh, and, and our interpreters, you know, we knew there were tens of thousands of interpreters and their families there. We just knew too much to leave. We couldn't leave. And so we chose to stay and through a coordinated effort with other nonprofits, we, we kept leading these efforts and got another 5,000 people out totaling 17,000. Uh, we had also seen as the flights dry up, the effort push to people fleeing Kabul in a place called the Panjir Valley, where they want people wanted to uh, evacuate and flee the the Tajikistan border to escape, but they didn't know how to escape because you got mountains, treacherous mountains, and Taliban and and the Panjir River, which is an ice melt, Category Five Rapids River, uh, and guarded by the Taliban and Chinese military was there, the Russian military was there, so they didn't have any information how to cross. And how to pass so um, we made the decision to send a two-man team myself and one other uh, team member uh, named Dennis and we went into the Tajikistan and we went to the Panjir River uh, crossed over in Afghanistan and, uh, and and built routes to provide that information out so people could uh, have the information they needed to safely evacuate and uh, so you know this all happened in a very short period of time and, uh, and so many amazing people were involved um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a miraculous thing. And, uh, and, you know, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy where we are today, where there still have, according to the state department and, you know, in July's July 18th report, the state department said that we still have 74,000 of our interpreters still in Afghanistan and where the terrorist regime, the Taliban that they were fighting with us against is there 74,000. And if you add their family members, which the average 4.5 family members, we're talking 330,000 families of our interpreters that fought alongside of us for uh, 20 years that are in danger left there. And the State Department's moving them out 200, 200 uh, per week. And that that if they stay on that plan, they'll successfully get all of our people out in 140 years. So it's a terrible system. They had no plan uh, to safely evacuate everyone. And there's no telling how many Americans are still there. Uh, we'll never know. And, uh, you know, this anniversary is a, a happy moment because I'm sitting here next to my friend Aziz. So it's a happy moment in that, that he's family safe in America. But it's also a sad moment to know that this didn't have to happen. Our interpreters didn't have to be left behind. Our, our, our uh, American citizens didn't have to be left behind. And the world is, is, not, is not a safe place today because of the decision that was made to evacuate Afghanistan. There was absolutely no reason for us to turn over Afghanistan and Bagram Air Force Base, the most strategic location in the world that sits between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China, to turn it over to the Taliban, the world's largest terrorist regime, the most dangerous terrorist regime. There was no reason to do that. We had 2,500 troops on the ground there. At one point, 2,500. At the time we evacuated, we had 4,000 troops. We still have 80,000 in Japan and, and, uh, and, and 40,000 in Germany and 35,000 in South Korea. You know, of all these years since World War II and the Korean War, we have all these troops in this debate. Why did we have to leave? We didn't have to leave. The president's advisors advised against it. They decided to do it anyway. It was a catastrophe. Many thousands of lives were lost. Who knows how many people's lives are being lost now. Women's rights in Afghanistan are gone. Uh, they're living as, as 20 million women are sex slaves in Afghanistan right now because of it. And the world is a much, much more dangerous place. 
And, uh, and the, the tragedy continues. That's we're not even moving our interpreters that have been evacuated. We still have thousands in places like Abu Dhabi right now that the State Department will not move. And uh, it's just a tragedy, Samantha. It really is. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, the 74,000 number that you brought up. What are the consequences for those for those allies if they were to get caught by the Taliban? I mean, what consequences are they facing potentially? Well, you know, I can let Aziz speak more to it. But to me, these people, these this is the enemy of the Taliban. These are the people that fought alongside of us for 20 years against the Taliban. This is their enemy. They're going to, they have already, they're going to torture them. They're going to kill them, likely torture them in front of their families, kill their families, enslave their their women, uh, their wives and daughters. Uh, and there's no repercussions to it. You know, we gave, we, I mean, the United States of America gave Afghanistan to the enemy without consultation, by the way, of the Afghan government, without consultation of the other uh, international community that was using Bagram Air Force Base as a international hub to defeat terrorism. We gave that all of that to the Taliban. So they have full authority to pers- prosecute and persecute their enemies, which is our interpreters. And they're still there, 74,000 of them, over 300,000 considering their families in Afghanistan, vulnerable and being hunted down, the last we know, being hunted down by the Taliban. And uh, it, 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 it just troubles my soul to know what, what has happened to these people who, like Aziz, Aziz is an example of someone who fought alongside of us bravely, saved my life, saved U.S. service members' lives. These are the people that we handed over to the enemy. Aziz, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, obviously, as uh, Chad mentioned, uh, the, the Taliban are uh, uh, a group of uh, people uh, that are ignorant, uneducated from the childhood. They are trained in Pakistani madrasas and uh, those lockups. They are given an ideology to kill anyone who doesn't have a beard, who doesn't have a turban or a beard is an infidel for them. Anyone who worked for the United States government or the Afghan, uh, the ex-Afghan government, they are infidels. For them, killing uh, of us and the other interpreters or the contractors or the ex-Afghan officers, soldiers, is like, uh, uh, it's giving, uh, giving them the, the, the idea of that they will uh, become uh, 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 to go to the paradise. They think that by killing of all, uh, all of us, they will get the chance to go to paradise. So uh, what should we expect from such a group, such a terrorist group, that all they did was uh, in the last 20 years and even before that, they blew up people, they put bombs on themselves and uh, just uh, killing, massacre, uh, they didn't have mercy on children. They didn't have mercy on women. They didn't have mercy on the children that were born in the hospital. I mean, uh, there is not such a thing that uh, gives legitimacy to Taliban to have or own Afghanistan. Now, Aziz and Chad, I just have uh, two final questions for you. Uh, first and foremost, do you have a message for President Biden one year after the Taliban takeover? Well, I mean, you know, we could, I could I could sit here and, and point out all the mistakes that that he's he's made um, and, and the administration has made to create this situation. Uh, but the one thing that I would encourage uh, the president to do if, if I was given an audience with him today would be to do the right thing and accelerate the process to get our interpreters 
safely out of Afghanistan, out of the humanitarian centers around the world, and to the United States. These are people with SIV processes that that are in SIV processes. We know who they are. They were contracted to the military. We made an obligation, a promise to them that there was to be a nine-month process uh, to get them out. And uh, and and meanwhile, we have our southern border, ten thousand people that we don't know who they are crossing the southern border every day freely with uh, open arms. Why can't we in one week, in one week, uh, solve this problem and do the right thing? Uh, it impacts our reputation around the world. How could we ever trust a nation of people to lock arms and fight for us any, in any other future war in the world when we continue to abandon our allies? Uh, so I would encourage him in that. I would also encourage him in the fact that uh, the Taliban is not a government. They're not someone to be trusted. Uh, they, we recently seen this with al-Zahari al uh, walking around free and al-Qaeda walking around free in uh in Kabul just weeks ago, uh, violating the Doha agreement, which is a ridiculous agreement to have an agreement with terrorists, not to support terrorism, but the Doha agreement uh, needs to be just scrapped. I mean, we cannot trust these people. This is a terrorist safe haven and needs to be treated as such for the sake of the American people and for the sake of the security around the world. Yeah, on my part, uh, uh, actually, uh, it's a moral obligation for the United States government to save uh, and bring all those guys uh, that served under the uh, United States uh, uh, contract, either directly or indirectly in Afghanistan for 20 years or more than that. And uh, as a result of that, they lost their house, their uh, friends, they lost everything. Some of them are in Pakistan. Uh, their future is not clear. Some of them are in Albania. Their future is not clear. Some of them are in Abu Dhabi, in Tajikistan, and some other neighboring countries like India and Iran. So uh, uh, it's a very uh, it will be uh, it's a very good time that uh, the uh, I'm asking the United States government that they should uh, uh, as a government. Uh, as a United States government, they, uh, they should achieve their moral obligation towards all those people that served with their military and government people shoulder, uh, shoulder to shoulder in Afghanistan. And then finally, can you talk about the future of Afghanistan? What happens next? A year after the country fell to the Taliban, what lies ahead? It's a safe haven for terrorism. I mean, we've seen that again with al-Zahari last uh, weeks ago. Al-Qaeda is running around free. Uh, this Doha agreement is a complete uh, joke. Uh, and uh, it, it's a safe haven for terrorism. Not, but not only is it a safe haven for terrorism, it is the most strategic location on the map. I mean, our, Afghanistan sits between Iraq, Iran, Russia, China, and, uh, and, and it has Bagram Air Force Base. They have access to billions of dollars, uh, the room, you know, rumored to be up to $85 billion in U.S. equipment and technology. Uh, we would assume it being sold to the, to the Pakistanis, to the Iranians, to uh, the Chinese, uh, maybe to Russia, um, whoever's the highest bidder. And, uh, and, and we know that Ch the Chinese military has been occupying uh, Bagram Air Force Base. Uh, our, uh, China and Iran is, is able to trade uh, sanctioned oil across Afghanistan, which is what they wanted all along. Uh, China has the mineral rights to the Hindu Kush mineral right, uh, minerals in the uh, like lithium and things like that. This is complete uh, disaster uh, in this area. So the future of Afghanistan is is a benefit to a beneficial scenario to all of our enemies 
when I say all of all the enemies to the not just the United States, but to the free world. And that's just from a security standpoint. The future of Afghanistan, however, on a more personal level, to the Afghan people is a dark, dark place. 40 million Afghans have just become slaves to the Taliban uh, and their uh, evil ideology that Aziz mentioned. 20 million women and women and little girls are going to be sexually enslaved. No more education in schools. No more uh, women's rights. Uh, they're going to be sold off. We know that we know for a fact they're already being sold off for as low as four hundred dollars. Uh, Nine-year-old girls to fifty-year-old men. Uh, completely disgusting. And and while the world for the last few years, you know, screamed about Me Too movements in Hollywood and things like this, the world has been silent on these twenty million uh, girls. And my heart bleeds and breaks for them every day. Uh, seeing how happy they were about to go to school uh, and about to uh, pursue careers and work in government, have a voice and, and be journalists and doctors and all these things, all that's gone. And it seems like the world just doesn't care and is silent about it because they worried about uh, the, the pressure coming from censorship and these things. It's it's uh, the future of Afghanistan is dark. The world is a, is much more dangerous place because of the decisions that we made uh, in, in, the, in the exit of Afghanistan. And, and it's just... Uh, you know, I don't know, Samantha, how it's turned around with the current administration. Yeah, uh, uh, honestly, uh, it's actually a very, uh, it will have a dark future. It's a place where the uh, radical uh, terrorist groups are re-emerging. Like uh, there was a news that, that some uh, Uzbeks, they are coming, crossing the border and coming to Badakhshan province. Uh, by the near the China, uh, the, some radical people from China, from Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, they made a radical group and they are re-emerging over there. The Al Qaeda is over there. For the, uh, the the girls are oppressed. There is no education for the girls. Uh, in general, uh, it will have a really bad negative impact on the whole world if the world does not pay attention as quick as possible to Afghanistan, because uh, right now uh, the, the control of the country is in the hand of such an ignorant people that they only think that they are the pure and blessed children of God, but the rest of the world is infidel for them. Chad and Aziz, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about the one-year anniversary of Afghanistan falling to the Taliban. I so appreciate you coming on and Aziz telling your story, Chad going over the uh, evacuation efforts and the logistics of it. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Samantha, one more thing before we go. Uh, you know, Aziz is now a proud Texan. Uh, here We're here in Amazing. And in uh, and, and January 17th, we'll be releasing the book uh, through Thomas Nelson, HarperCollins, uh, Saving Aziz, uh, which is the story of the withdrawal, uh, Aziz and I's long history, and, uh, and answering some of the questions more in depth that we talked about today. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you have not done so already, be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and of course, encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen, Doug Blair, and Samantha Rank. 
Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.